Welcome to today's message from Transformation Church with Pastor Jim Balzano. Hi, go like this. Do this for me. Come on, play with me this morning. Let me, let me be weird for a little bit, okay? I know I'm weird, but I'm going to be weirder, okay? Is that all right? All right. Now, just hold your hand there, kind of like do it comfortable. Some of you will get tired after three seconds. All right? Bible tells me in the beginning of the Bible, Genesis, that Eve, along with Adam, were tempted by the serpent. How many know they fell to that temptation? How many know they were snake-bitten? How many know because they were snake-bitten that the rest of humanity was snake-bitten and that we lived under a curse, if you will? Thank God for Jesus who defeated the serpent. Amen? Now, well, why am I making you hold your hand like this? Because how many know that even though he has been defeated, how many of you know the serpent still bites? How many of you have ever been bitten? I mean, everybody has been bitten by the serpent. Anybody in this house know what I'm talking about? Does anybody know there's a real devil who seeks to destroy you? That, uh, that, you, know, you know that guy? But let me tell you a scripture. I don't know why I'm sharing this. The Lord just dropped it in me a few minutes ago. I said, okay, I'll do it. I'll be weird. See, the Bible tells me in Acts chapter 28, a story about Paul, that Paul was on the island of Malta. When he was on the island of Malta after a shipwreck, they built an, uh, a fire. And when they built the fire, it caused a serpent to come out of the fire, and it bit Paul. Here's what it says. But when Paul gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a viper came out, and because of the heat, fastened himself on his hand. When the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they began to say to one another, this man is undoubtedly a murderer. <laughs> and though he has been saved from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. Isn't it amazing? They see a serpent on his hand. They make a declaration. He's a murderer because the sea didn't kill him. God's getting him with a snake now. Right? How many know there have been times in our lives where people have made a judgment against you because of it being snake bit? How many know there have been times in your life where people have made a judgment and said something about you? It was nothing about you. It was a matter of the character of the serpent, not the character of the person. Right? And now watch this. For, um, but, however, Paul, he shook the creature off into the fire and suffered no harm. Now get this. Now here he is. He's got a snake hanging on his hand. Right? They're making a declaration saying he's a wicked, evil man. God's getting him. God's killing him. And Paul goes, and puts him in the very fire that destroyed him. What's my purpose of saying this this morning? Some of you are walking right now. You've been snake bit. It's time to shake it off. Just shake it off in the name of Jesus. Just shake it off. Just shake them off. Get, get, get away. Go, 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 go. Come on. How many know sometimes we, 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 he, he latches on and we start playing with him? He latches on and we start complaining and whining and a whole lot of other things. Just listen to me. Paul, notice, Paul never says a word. Paul never defends himself. Paul never vindicates himself. Paul never says a word. Paul just goes, you, oh, you. <laughs> Get out of here. He shook him off. Listen to me. It's time that you shake off the accusation of the enemy. It's time you shake off the tricks of it. It's time to shake off the enemy this morning. Just say, no, no, no. You've been defeated. You were defeated at Calvary. My God took care of you. Yeah, I feel the pain, and yes, I feel the sting, but you got no power over me. Come on. You got no power over me. It's funny, it goes on. But they were still expecting him to swell up even after the steak bite. They were expecting him to swell up or suddenly fall dead. But after they had waited a long time, <laughs> get this. is he gonna die? Is he gonna swell up? Nothing's happening. But after they waited a long time and had seen nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds 
and began to say that he was a god. Okay, how many know that's a little stretch now, right? But it's interesting. From that point on, you know what Paul does? Paul actually ends up going into the island and praying for the sick and healing them. Come on, listen to me this morning. Shake him off. Just shake him off. Shake him off. I know it sounds flippant, doesn't it? But do you understand he's already defeated? He's defeated. Shake him off. Okay, that was, that was message number one. No, my next one will not be that short. And listen to Ferguson talking about the lighthouse. He's so mean to me. Hey, I want to take a moment, though. Um, I want to thank all of you for the kind words and expressions of sympathy to Penny and myself for her loss of her father last week. Um, very unexpected. Uh, it, was, it was amazing. I was here, and I had got up to read a scripture on my phone, and when I went back down, I looked at my phone, and, and I saw a text message from Aunt Linda. It said, Dave. <laughs> it said, Dave collapsed, not responsive, ambulance here. And I first looked at it and thought, well, sometimes I don't know what she's actually trying to text me. But I looked at it, and I was like, Dave? And I went, Dave who? And I was like, oh, wait. Dave, my father-in-law. So I went out and made a phone call, and that's when I found out that um, he had been taken to the hospital, and he, he, actually, I had beat him there, actually. Um, but thank, thankfully, Peter was here. Peter did a phenomenal job. Everybody did a great job rallying around it. Uh, it was quite short notice for Peter, about three minutes. Hey, I got to go. <laughs> I mean, the Bible says be ready in season or not, right? In season or not. So anyhow, thank you for your kind words and expressions of sympathy. Grab your Bible. Go to Second. Uh, Corinthians chapter 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. <clears throat> How about a crazy era in which we're living, huh? Yes, okay, praise the Lord. Hey, I mean, it's just a crazy era. You, you watch what's happening in the world, and it is just one amazing time in which we live. Now, I'm, and I think, uh, you know, the temptation is to always be preaching about those things, and we are going to preach about some of it today, but I want to make I want to remind you of a couple of things. You know, when we look at what's going on in the world, one of the things that I see so vividly is I spoke about this a few months, a couple months ago, about the whole Absalom thing. There is an absolute fight for power in our country. Okay? Make no mistake about it. Whatever side you're on, I don't care. The battle is over power and who is going to have the power and who is going to control. All right? And whether, I, again, and there is always God-ordained power, God-ordained authority, and there's always that which tries to usurp God-ordained authority. You see it all through Scripture, okay? Now, one of the things that we see right now happening in our world is you got this Absalom in the Old Testament who was King David's son. King David was the king. He sits at the gate waiting for people who have an injustice to bring before the king. All right? And every day would come, he would then say, well, tell me. If you would only tell me, I would take care of it for you. You see, and what he was doing was he was taking what was a real injustice, but then using their injustice as his platform to gain power. In our world, there is injustice. Amen? Make no mistake about the fact that there is injustice in our world. There's racism in our world. There's sexism. There's classism. And we cannot deny that there is an injustice in the world. But what we cannot, what we cannot miss is how there will be those who will take that real injustice and then use it as a platform in order to gain power. Okay? Now, injustice always thrives on one thing. The absence of truth. The absence of truth 
is where injustice thrives. How many know you can't have justice without truth? When you go, when you, well, there's a reason when you go to court that they say, do you, you solemnly swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, I'll help you, God? No, I haven't been doing, I haven't done that before. Right? What are they looking for? They're expecting you to tell the truth, and the reason they're expecting you to tell the truth is so justice can be administered. How many know we're living in a day that is void of truth? Yes. Does anybody out there have a voice this morning? Yeah. All right. Because we, the average American people, do not know exactly what the truth is. Because what we have, no matter what side you want to pick right now, is we have agenda-driven reporting, agenda-driven journalism. And how many know that that always skews the truth? And, in that, and when that truth is skewed, injustice can prevail. The average American has a little ability to peel away the veil and see what the actual truth is. And, and yet we have a temptation to make solid declarations. That this is a, I don't even know what some of the truth is. Do you? Good. I'm glad you don't either. So that's just something I wanted to ponder on. Message two. You cannot have justice without truth. You just can't. All right. We're not into that message either, so I'm going to get another one. What's our primary calling? That's what I'm going to talk about this morning. The church, you, me, believers. What is our primary calling? Let me, let me say something else. I got, a, I got a third message before the fourth message. This is very heavy on my heart. The bigger challenge to the church is coming out of the COVID era than going into it. Going into it was easy. You say, well, how was it easy? We just make a plan. God will be there. He'll be out there coming out of it too. But I'm going to say this to you. Because what happens is going in, people understand they're seeing something in the world they've never seen before. What's the issue? What's the problem? Let's rally around it. How many know we are, we are Americans who are great at rallying around something? That there's a need, it looks like there's an urgent, okay, let's rally around this, let's do what we need to do, and we did that. As a church, we did that. We made plans. We did this. We did that. We did parking lot. We did online. We did a number of things. People were more, I'm telling you, people were more intentional about their giving in the going into this. Because I've had phone calls from people asking me, does the church need anything? Right? I haven't gotten many recently, but anyhow, okay? And so going into this, it was easier. Coming out of it and keeping the church connected is going to be harder because, I'm going to tell you why. Number one is that people have been able to disconnect for a period of about two and a half months. And it has made connecting, disconnecting afterwards easier. It ha now, now, with everything opened up again, how many know now the distractions and the challenges to church are there again? Yeah, you know, going in, in the COVID era when you were under a stay-at-home order, you could change plans the day before and people were going to show up because they didn't have anything else to do, right? And so now there's all the challenges and all the distractions. There has become a law over the church in some sense, thank God for online, and I love the fact that we can watch church online, but it is not the same as being in a house with other believers. It's just not. Now, people say, but I don't need to go to the church. No, you don't need to go to the church. Of course you don't. But it is better to be with God's people. Okay? And I'm saying to you that the challenge of the church was not going into COVID. The challenge for the church is coming out of COVID. And I'm seeing it rampantly ramp up in the past week or two. So I'm going to say to you, why am I saying that to you? Because I want to say to you, the body of Christ, let's be intentional about coming out of it as much as we were as going into it. Amen? Three messages in 10 minutes. 
And now I'm going to give you one in 30. And you're all saying, if he does not 30, that'll be a miracle. Primary calling. I need to talk to you about this, all right? Let's grab this. Uh, let's begin with this, the scripture. It says, therefore, being always of good courage, Paul's talking in um, 2, Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians chapter 5, always being of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. How many know that in our life we should be living pleasing to him? All right. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done whether good or bad. Now let me stop there for a moment. In this portion of scripture, Paul begins with talking about this body that we live in. How many know that Paul refers to this body as a tent? All right, mine would be a pup tent. <laughs> Some of you would be a little bit of your family tent. I'm just teasing, I'm picking on me, not you. Right? That, that, he says you're, uh, this body is a tent. And in this tent, we are housing the spirit of God and this is a temporary thing, is it not? Like, this thing doesn't last forever. Aren't you glad? I mean, the Bible promises me a new body someday. I'm putting my specs in now. Right? I'm going to be Arnold in a glorified state. Right? But in this tent, we are on the earth, and we are to be about the things of God. All right? Now, so we understand that our earthly tent is a tool for heavenly work in an earthly world. Do you know how many of us live and forget that we are to be about the work of heaven on the face of the earth? That we all, a lot of us only live on earth to get to heaven rather than living on earth to do the work of heaven. You and I, as believers in Jesus Christ, we're living in a tent. If the, if the only goal was to get to heaven, then he should kill us. Take us home. Get us out of here. Let's go live in the eternal tent. But that's not it. He has a purpose, and that purpose is for you and I to live in this tent doing the work of God in an earthly world. Now, our earthly tent can only do heavenly work in an earthly world as we walk by faith, not by sight. All right, Paul talked about this. Think about this in your life. It is really hard sometimes to do the work of heaven if you don't accompany it by faith. The Bible tells me it's impossible to please God without faith. You see, because all that we do and all that we say comes through a vein of faith that we work in this world, that we're not doing it by sight. Because if we do it by sight, how many know we will get discouraged? If we do it by sight, how many know we will not be able to perform it? How many know if you look into the world today, the sight that you see is a very discouraging picture? Anybody turn on the news and get like frustrated, discouraged, social media. Like, oh, like I, I, you should see how fast I scroll fast social media now. Shoo, 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 okay? Like, don't want to hear that. Don't want to hear that. Don't care about Don't want to hear that. Don't want to hear that. All right? I turned on the news the other night. It's like, yeah, that's enough, like five minutes, okay? Not that I stick my head into this, and that's not it at all. But if you watch it too much and you, you, you engross yourself into too much, I promise you, you will walk away discouraged. You will walk away angry. You will walk away with less faith, not more faith. We must understand that right now, even though what we see around us is chaotic, 
We must see through the vein of faith. We must see through a prism of faith. We must act through a prism of faith. We must live through a prism of faith, right? Why? Because in this moment of chaos, you and I are living in an earthly tent doing the work of God, right? Now, so stick with me. I'm just setting this up. We got a long ways to go. You said, oh, no. All right, the things we do in this earthly tent are either pleasing or displeasing to God. Man, how many of you have children, and you know you love them, but there are those pleasing things they do, and there are those displeasing things they do, right? My mother never experienced the displeasing part of that. (laughs) You look at your children sometimes, and you go, I love you, but oh, geez, how could you do that? Right? Like, that came from your father. That came from your mother. And no, it didn't come from their grandparent, Tony. Right? The things we do in our tent are either pleasing or displeasing. Right? Now, understand something. There's going to come a day that the things that you and I do in this tent, they're going to be judged by Jesus. This is not salvation judgment. Okay? This is the the judgment seat of Christ will be a day where you and I, as believers, the things that we've done in this tent are going to be judged. And they're going to be proved, whether they're, whether they're wood, hay, or stubble, whether they're gold. There's going to be a testing of that. I don't know about you, but sometimes I think of that. I go, ooh, I don't know if I like that. Like, I don't know if I like that sometimes. You know, all right? And, 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 not just, and it's not just going to be what we did, but it's going to be why we did. How many know you could do the right thing with the wrong motive? How many know you can do the work of God, and you do the work of God? It's, not, it's about the work of God, but it's also about Look at me as I do the work of God. I, I need to put 27 selfies up as I do this good work. I'm so sick of that garbage. Anyhow, okay, shut up, Jim. All right. <laughs> Joey back there going, don't do it. Don't you do it. He's already, I can, I can just feel it now. The work we do is going to be judged, right? Now, think about this. How does the fact that our works will be judged impact us now? When we really stop and think about it, I'm saying, wait a minute, what I'm doing right now, forget about salvation. I'm not talking about salvation works. We are only saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. And once we're saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, now we're a believer, and now the works that we do in this tent are gonna be judged one day by Jesus. How does that fact impact us now? I don't know about you, but it should, it should in my mind, do two things to me. Number one, it should cause me to be active. It should cause me to do works as a believer. It should cause me to be about the work of the kingdom on the face of the earth. Number two, it should judge my motives. It should cause me to guard my motives when my flesh gets in the way. Come on, how many know sometimes we want to be noticed? Right? It's not a matter, we all like the applause. Who doesn't like the applause? Right? It's how you frame it and shape it and suppress it. You know when you're doing something to be seen by men and you know when you don't, okay? And how, so it should impact us two ways. It should cause us to work and it should cause us to work with the proper motives knowing that one day our works are gonna be judged by Jesus. Now, Paul goes on. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord. How many like that phrase, the terror of the Lord? How many of you fear the Lord? We should fear the Lord. Knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men but we are well known to God, and I trust 
also I'll trust are well known in your consciousness. Now watch this. This terror of the Lord is not a message of if I don't persuade men, I might face the terror of the Lord. That's not what it means. It means that since we've been delivered from the terror of the Lord that we would have experienced had it not been for Jesus. I mean, outside of Jesus, you and I would experience the judgment and terror of God on an unsaved, unredeemed person, right? We, the, the, the God of holiness is a terror to the unholy. But that terror is removed in Christ, okay? In Christ, we have been rescued from the terror of the Lord. Now, stick with me here. So here we're setting this up. So Paul's talking about how we, when we are absent from the Lord, we're at home in this body, in this tent. In this tent, we are to be on the earth about the work of God. As we are about the work of God, understanding that what we do is pleasing or displeasing. And we understand that one day the works that we do in this body will be judged by Jesus. And they're either going to be wood, hay, or stubble. They'll be gold. All right? And they will be judged. Now, Let's move on. So Paul says this, for the love of Christ compels us, controls us, having concluded this, that one Jesus died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. So this is where it is. So what is it that compels us? Christ's love for us and our love for him should be the governing power of our lives. What is it that governs our life? How many know it's his love for us? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That while we were yet sinners, how many know Christ died for us because of his love? Right? The loving kindness of God draws us to redemption. You see, there's a compelling driving force in our life that is knowing that we are loved by God. My grandchildren love me. Why? Because I spoil them rotten. No, that's not true. I spoil them rotten because they love me. Right? Their love for me is compelling. My love for them causes me to do things. Paul says this, Christ's love for us and our love for him should be the governing power of our lives. Right? So now, there are things that you do in this tent and the reason that you do them in this tent is because of his love for you and your love for him. The best work you will ever do in your life is that which flows from a foundation of love. Eric and I have been working for about a month maybe or so on a playhouse for the kids. Now, Jeff Long is building the Grand Palazzo over in the old Mercy Hospital, Bon Secours Hospital. This is the little palazzo. Okay, this thing is like got two floors. It's like, it, it is really, really, really nice. I mean, it's really nice. And the reason that we did this is because we love, it, we're being governed by love. So we used our, our, our money, we used our time, we used our talent, we used our skill, we used our craftsmanship. Why? To build something for them from a foundation of love where there was no sacrifice that was too great at that moment. Do you understand this morning, this is what it is to love God. 
to love Christ, that his love for us and our love for him compels us and governs our lives to be about his business. Now, here's the question for you. What can govern your life if the love of Christ and the love for Christ can't? Is it going to be law? How many know you can only scare a child into submission so long? <laughs> How many know you can only scare them so long? We, I, I, that only so long will trying to scare them or intimidate them into submission will work. Because there will be a day where they're big enough to throw off that yoke. But love has a de- totally different component to it. Love has a totally different component of becoming a governing factor in their lives. Now, this is all preface, setting up to where we're going. Now, all these things, Paul said, are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now, Paul was a man reconciled to God through Jesus, okay? Who was now living his earthly tent, doing the work of the kingdom on the earth. Paul was a reconciled man who was given a ministry of reconciliation whereby he would preach the message of the gospel and it would cause men to be reconciled to God, right? Paul was a man who had a changed ideology because of that reconciliation. You know who Paul was? Remember Paul? Paul was Saul. Saul was who? Persecutor, murderer, killed the church, persecuted the church, put people in prison, had them beaten. He was doing it because he was zealous for God. He had an ideology, and the ideology was this Christian group, this new sect, they are against God, they are ungodly, and I'm going to destroy them. He was a terrorist of the church until he had an encounter with Jesus. And when he had an encounter with Jesus, he was reconciled to God, and out of that reconciliation, an ideology changed. I would suggest to you this morning that each and every one of us in this house should have had at one point in our life an ideology change based upon being reconciled to God. That every one of us should have had a change of thinking that there is old thinking that has got to go when I am reconciled to Jesus. That I cannot be racist and be a follower of Jesus. That I cannot be sexist and be a follower of Jesus. That I cannot be classist and be a follower of Jesus. That I cannot continue to be a lying or cheat and be a follower of Jesus. There's got to be an ideology change that lines up with the kingdom of God. Now, I'm even going to say this to you this morning, and some of you aren't going to like it, but it's okay because I still love you and you still love me because the love of Christ compels us to. That there's an ideology change that happens when I am reconciled to God, that I am kingdom of God first and American second. That I am kingdom of God first and Republican second. That I am kingdom of God first and Democrat second. That my ideology now, how I live, how I think, and how I act, and how I talk, is now based upon the kingdom of God and not America. I love America. I'm not anti-American. I'm, okay? I'm, not, I'm anti-nationalism in place of the kingdom. The kingdom of God is greater than America. Okay? 
And there has to be an ideology change that happens in our mind when you and I come into the kingdom through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, who is, so this group of people who are reconciled is the church. The church is a reconciled people who are now living in covenant with God. How many know I get a covenant with my father? I get a covenant with God because of Jesus Christ. The church is a reconciled people who now live in covenant with God while in covenant with each other. I'm in covenant with you. I'm in covenant with you. You're in covenant with me. We're in covenant with God. Because we're in covenant with God, we're in covenant with each other's brothers and sisters of Christ. Right? And as we live in covenant with God and each other, we carry now a burden. And it is the burden of reconciliation. Okay? Reconciliation. And one of the things I want to make mention of first is reconciliation with God should cause us to be reconciled with each other. If you're at odds with somebody, why? Now, it could be on them. Okay. <laughs> you know, you can't, you can't make somebody like you. I mean, it's hard to believe that some people don't like me. I mean, can you imagine that? I'm telling you, Tim. I'm going to tell you later. You go get them for me, okay? Uh, listen, I'm going to tell you so you can get them, okay? I'll put a post on social media. I'll fish, and then you come to my defense. Yeah, okay. We see that nonsense all the time, <laughs> okay? Listen to me. Some of you, I, I'm going to meddle this morning. Some of you are sitting in here this morning, and you feel justified in being unreconciled with somebody. How? You are... And I'm talking about being unreconciled with brothers and sisters in Christ under the blood of Jesus Christ. Stop justifying it. Humility will bring reconciliation, will it not? Forgiveness will bring reconciliation. When you're reconciled with God, it should be reconciled with the other. Paul's reconciliation with God caused him then to be reconciled to the church. Racial reconciliation is not the primary calling of the church. Uh-oh, that's a popular message today because we all have to show we're not racist. Honestly, I, I look at some of the stuff out there, I'm thinking, you're just, all you're trying to do is prove you're not racist. Shut up, you don't have to prove you're not racist. Just don't be racist. I, I got 30 years of ministry that shows I'm not racist. I don't need to prove I'm not racist. Okay, anybody who knows me, anybody who's been around my house for the last 30, 40 years knows who we are, knows what we're about. I don't need to prove I'm not a racist, Okay? So I'm, I'm, I, I, sometimes we just need to be quiet and let our life still speak for itself. Okay? But I want to say this. But we should, now listen to me. I'm talking about our primary calling as the church and our primary calling as believers. And our primary calling is not racial reconciliation. <laughs> the primary calling of the church is the reconciling men to God. The primary calling, now you say, now listen to me, we're going to get into the other stuff in just a moment. Because what I'm seeing and what I'm sensing is that we're trying to reconcile races and forgetting about the ministry of reconciliation. If we will focus upon our primary calling, I promise you reconciliation of races will come about. We cannot expect, we're, we're and I'm seeing us as the church, as the body of Christ. There's a lot of talk about racial reconciliation and we should be about it and we should stand against racism. But we must understand our primary calling is about seeing men become redeemed. Be it redemption of souls, the redemption of humanity. Redemption in and of itself should provide an ideology change. Let us not miss our primary calling. The reconciliation with God should produce 
the reconciliation of races. Right? How can you... See, when I read the Bible and Revelation tells me that by the blood of Jesus, he purchased from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. Huh, that's every. That means black, yellow, white, brown, purple, pink. Okay? So then how in the world can I live with racism when I've been reconciled to God? Who sacrificed Jesus, whose blood knows no color. Aren't you glad his blood knows no color? Okay? Reconciliation. If we, are, if we can get men saved, racial reconciliation will be a byproduct of that. You see, we, his church, we must stand against racism. We must stand for racial reconciliation. But it is not our primary calling. Our primary calling is to reconcile men to God. We must do that. Okay, watch this. If all we do is reconcile races without reconciling men to God, we've failed. This is for the church. I'm talking to the church today. I'm talking to the body of Christ today. If all we do is bring black and white together without bringing men together with God, we have failed as the church. Say, Pastor, there's going to be people who say you're not for racial reconciliation. Well, they don't know Pastor. Do you understand what I'm saying? Do you hear what our primary calling is? If you want to stand against racism, make sure you do it while you're standing for the gospel. If you want to stand for racial reconciliation, you must do it in the reconciliation of men to God. Let us not forget who and what we are about. It is possible for a person to not be racist and not be reconciled to God. I know lots of people who aren't saved and aren't racist. And they're still going to hell. They're still without Christ. Are we okay with that? See, the shadow mission, if we're not careful, will overtake the mission. The shadow mission can kind of look like the mission. The shadow mission can kind of be a caricature of the mission. But it is not in and of itself the mission. The mission of the church is to reconcile men to God. And when that happens, reconciliation of races will take place. But if we focus on the shadow mission, we will miss the main mission and people will go unsaved. If we ignore the word of reconciliation to men, it will be a bigger injustice than racism itself. We have a message that changes lives. The church has a message of salvation. The church has a message that changes the destiny of a person's soul and a person's family. We have a message that's been entrusted to us. We've got a group of, we got a bunch of young kids now in our country that are just living for a cause, man. They're seeing this cause and they're rallying to it. Praise God. I'm not against that. Some of them, I don't think they really know what they're talking about, but other than that, they want a cause to rally behind. I'm telling you as a church, we've already got a cause to rally around. And that's reconciling men to God. Okay? Racism is an ideology. And ideologies are changed when men become new creations in Christ Jesus. The old is gone, the new has come. 
Reconciliation through Christ brings men into the kingdom of God where there is no racism. How can we say we are the kingdom of God? I don't like you because you're black. I don't like you because you're white. I hold prejudice against you. Paul was prejudiced. How many know Jesus had racist as part of his apostles? Oh, yeah. Yeah, there was two of them. They were, they were, they were racist. Remember, this, remember the story? James and John? That Samaritan village went and received Jesus because he was going to Jerusalem. And what did they say? Remember, I preached it? Remember? You want us to call down fire from heaven and destroy them? <laughs> Come on. Like, it is so funny. You're traveling with Jesus. You're hanging out with the guy who has turned water into wine, raised the dead, walked on the water, <clears throat> healed the Canaanite's woman, oh, uh, the daughter. You're hanging with the guy that lepers are allowed to touch. Hey, okay, and now all of a sudden you've got this ideology that in the name of Jesus, you're going to destroy a whole village of Samaritans whom you hate. Sounds KKK to me. Because I mean, no, they thought they were Christian. They think they are Christian. They're not. They're not. They're not even close to it. Jesus had to train these men. This is not how you think in this kingdom. This is not the ideology that you operate with. You are part of my kingdom, and that ideology has got to change. There is no racism in the kingdom of God. There is no, if there's none in the kingdom of God, it allows none for your heart. Just telling you, if it's none in the kingdom, it allows none for your heart. So we must be a voice against racism as we are a voice for redemption. We gotta see people saved. We must see people, men, reconciled to God. In your earthly tent, your primary calling is being a witness of a king and a kingdom, not of this world. Your primary calling, believer, is to reveal the God of heaven, your primary calling is to reveal a kingdom not of this world. Do not get sucked into this world. That is your primary calling. That is my primary calling. That men would see a witness of Jesus and his kingdom. Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you to be my witnesses of a king and a kingdom not of this world. But what did they want? They wanted political power. They wanted political power to get rid of Rome. Right now, listen to me, right now, the church has a greater hunger sometimes for political power than we do Holy Spirit power that gets men saved. We got a, we got, we got a quest and we got a thirst for political power while denying the power of the Holy Spirit that will cause men to get saved. Become a voice of redemption. Become a voice of redemption. A voice of redemption, a life of redemption, an attitude of redemption that men see God through you. As we stand against racism and for race reconciliation, may we be the vessel through whom men hear the word of reconciliation to God, for that is our primary calling. What is that word? That Jesus Christ, the one, died for all so that all might live. That through Jesus Christ, I'm reconciled to God. Outside of Jesus, I am unreconciled. I'm at odds with God. But through him, I am brought near. Now, it's one thing to preach it, but how many know when I preach it and I live it, it's a totally another ballgame. Right? That is our primary calling, ladies and gentlemen. Our primary calling 
is compelled by love. Say, how do I do it, Pastor? How do I live out this primary calling that's on our life as a believer, as we live this in this earthly tent to do this heavenly work of reconciliation? How do I do it? The first one is, you gotta be compelled by love. All right, that the love that God had for you. Do you understand what happened to Paul? Paul was killing the church, murdering the church, persecuting the church. And he's on the road to Damascus, and he's going to throw more in prison and persecute more. And all of a sudden, he's got an encounter with Jesus. I don't know about you, but if I'm killing the guy's church, I'm assuming he's going to kill me. I'm Jesus whom you persecute. How many of that might have struck terror in your heart? That would have struck terror in my heart. When Jesus said to him, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. I'd have been like, "Uh uh-oh. But all of a sudden, Paul found something that I'm sure he didn't expect to get, which was the love and mercy and grace of God. And the love and mercy and grace of God became the compelling force of Paul's life the rest of his life where that man would go tirelessly and endlessly and do the work of the ministry. He was beaten 39 times, three times, 39 lashes. He was shipwrecked. He was hunger. He was starving. He was stoned. He was thrown outside the city. He was in prison. Why did he do all this? Because there was a love for his God, and there was a love that his God had him that became the compelling driving force of his life. Have you lost the love of God being the driving force of your life? If, the, if God's compelling love compels you, hate should not be part of our life. Right? Like, listen to me. We, we, our primary calling is compelled by love. Let me tell you how much God loves me. Let me tell you how much God loves you. Let me tell you about the love of God. We're so angry about what's going on in our country, we've forgotten how to love. We need to stop being angry and start loving. Our words are compelled by love. Our actions are compelled by love. Our fingers are compelled by love. Right? Our primary calling is living for Christ and not ourselves. Paul said it very clearly. He he, he said very clearly in in Corinthians. He said, well, now they live. He now lives for him. The life he now lives, he lives for him and not himself. Let's be honest. Much of our lives is spent about us. I got my hand up. I'll put them both up. That make you feel better. Most of our life is we are consumed with us. How does it impact me? How does it impact my family? And I'm not saying that's wrong. We I need to be important. But sometimes our actions, our attitudes are shaped from a selfish life, not an unselfish life. You see, sometimes. We even make the work of the church about us and not him. And when I don't get that sense of satisfaction, or I don't get that acknowledgement that I think I deserve, or I don't get this or that, then all of a sudden I become resentful towards the church. You see, we must come to a place that we understand that our primary calling is lived out because we're living for Christ and not ourselves. If Paul would have been living for himself, do you think he'd have been beaten 39 times, three times? 39 lashes, three times? Do you think he'd have put up with being shipwrecked? Do you think he'd have put up with being in prison? Do you think he would have put up with going hungry? He wouldn't have put up with any of that stuff. Forget that. I'm out of here. I'm going back to my Pharisee life. It was easier. 
Our lives are lived out with a primary calling when we're living for Christ and not ourselves. Our primary calling demands seeing with a heavenly perspective. Paul says, not, therefore, we regard no one from a worldly view any longer. <laughs> it's hard to see some people through heaven, isn't it? Huh? Like, it's hard to see some people through the eyes of Jesus, e- even when they're saved. I mean, like, sometimes I have to look at Pastor Troy, and I'm like, oh, Lord, you got to help me. I'm like, I'm like, How do you view people? What we view them through is labels. Right now we're viewing them through, are they a Democrat? Are they Republican? Are they black? Are they white? We're viewing them through a perspective, are we not? But I think we live out our primary calling best when we begin to view them through the lens of heaven. How does God see them? Especially believers that the Bible says are a new creation in Christ. How do you see your kids? Do you see them through the eyes of heaven or do you see them through the natural? Do you see sometimes, how many know sometimes we've got to see them for what they will be, not what they are? How many know we've got to see sometimes unbelievers for what they can be and not what they are? There has to be a perspective change that we are viewing people through a heavenly perspective and not an earthly perspective. Because if we see them through a natural perspective, how many know we're liable to respond to them in a natural perspective? Our primary calling demands the primary message of Jesus. The only message by which men can be saved is Jesus Christ. The only message by which men can be reconciled to God is Jesus. The only message, the true message, that's going to bring true racial reconciliation is when men and women are reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. Come on, Troy, let's give him hope. Now look, he's going to go all the way out around there because he's like those people in the Bible who would not go through Samaria. <laughs> he's going around Samaria. <laughs> there he goes. Let's all watch him. Come on. <laughs> he's, sneak- he's sneaking up on us. You don't know he's coming. They don't know, they don't know you're coming. He's yelling at me. I left the light. I don't care about that light. <laughs> Listen to me. In this day and age, chaos, injustice is rampant in the land. All the stuff that's going on. It's craziness going on. You're angry. Some of us are angry. There's things I read in there. You can't tell you how many times I've needed the power of the Holy Spirit to shut me up. I don't need his power to speak. I need it to shut me up. I can't tell you how many times I want to get on and I want to type something. But then I got to say to myself, is this my primary calling? No, it is not. The gospel of Jesus Christ and the reconciling of men, that is my primary calling. I must preach the kingdom. I must preach the kingdom for it is our primary calling. You must live the kingdom for it is your primary calling. Show people a king and a kingdom, not of this world. It's funny, when you read Jesus, he came and preached the message of the kingdom. His message was, repent, 
Because the goodness of the kingdom is here. Not fear. Look and see the king in the kingdom. Allow it to cause you to repent. Allow it to draw you close. The beauty of the, the beauty of the king in the kingdom will stand on its own. You do not need to be angry about what's going on. Present the king in the kingdom and it will draw people to it. It will draw men to it. Jesus said this, if I am lifted up, all men will be drawn into me. I will be drawn. I will draw them. Primary calling, reconciliation with God. Primary calling, seeing men redeemed. That is our primary calling. And it's founded upon this radical, crazy love that Jesus had for us, that God had for us, that now compels us. So Father, I ask your help that we the people of God would not become distracted from our primary calling. That we the people of God would live according to the primary calling upon our lives. That we would see men reconciled to God. That we would speak a message of reconciliation. We would speak a message that would draw men. We would live a lifestyle that would draw men. That we would live a lifestyle in this tent that is pleasing to you. That we would live a lifestyle in this tent that one day we will receive rewards for. And one day they're going to be judged. You are not willing that any should perish. And sometimes the fact of the matter is in our anger, in our moments of what's going on, we don't care if some perish as long as we get our own way. But may we pick up your heartbeat and may we say with you, None should perish. We're not willing that any should perish. We're going to be about our primary calling as we would reconcile men to God. In Jesus' name. Amen. Come on, church. Rise up to your primary calling. That's who you are. That's what you are.